All right, gossiping, complaining, criticizing, exaggerating. Stop it. (laughs) Sounds like bad parenting, doesn't it? Hey, we're going to begin this morning in Philippians 2. We're going to end in Philippians 2. So I want to ask you to turn to Philippians 2. In a moment, we'll put it on the screen. There's a couple of common expressions. I bet uh, you feel me when I say this. A couple of very common expressions that have been on the scene for a couple of decades or more. Uh, one of those expressions is these words, it's all good. You've used that, hadn't you? You've heard it being used. Hey, how you doing? It's all good. Hey, tough game yesterday. It's all good. Hey man, sorry to hear about it's all good. Another expression that's common, it's really used mostly uh, by men who are older, even older than me. Hey, how you doing? I can't complain. You ever heard that? How you doing? I I can't complain. Hey, sorry to hear about, oh, you know, I can't complain. Somebody once said that a man who says he can't complain just lacks imagination. So here's what I want to say to you today. It's all good. I can't complain. There is a human response. No, it ain't. Yes, you can. Philippians 2, 14. We'll begin here. We'll end here. It says this. I don't want this to feel like a weight or burden that lands on you. I want you to see it, as I told the 930, like an invitation, like a possibility. Oh, just think and dream with me what life would look like if we could live this way. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. And since maybe some of you grumbled this morning in some way, read this aloud with me. It'll help redeem some words you said earlier. Ready? ready? Philippians 2.14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now, I don't know some of you. I'm looking at the faces of some guests here. So glad that you're here. I know a good number of you, but here's what I probably know about all of you. You're not complaining as much these last couple of days. You're not complaining as much as you were. Temperature dropped a little bit, right? You were wondering if this day... How many of you turned on the heat this morning or last night? Anybody? Okay, a little premature. How many of you, uh, how many of you got a fire going? Anybody? Anybody? Yeah, I see Steve back there, my wife Susan, calling her out as I did in the 9.30, too early, babe. But aren't we excited? And so when the weather drops in Mississippi, God in heaven knows we complain a lot less. There are uh, some reasons that we do complain. But think for a moment, have you been the one observing the grumbling or the complaining or the whining? Not long ago, I had a flight to Orlando and I sat... behind a mom and a son, a seven-year-old son. The mom was in the aisle seat, the seven-year-old son was in the center seat, and the poor stranger, poor soul, was sitting at the window. And they were, it was abundantly clear, they were going to Disney World. He had on a really bright Mickey Mouse sweatshirt. The mom was telling him about the coming rides and attractions. But excuse my English, he wasn't studying her. He wasn't studying her at all. In fact, he was throwing a fit about not sitting in the window seat. And I wanted to say to this punk kid, I mean, this child of God, I wanted to say to this little kid, I wanted to say, you're going to the magic kingdom and you're grumbling about not having the window seat. I was at a ball field. This is a common scene. You can picture it with me. I was at a ball field and a dad, that dad, yelled at his son. His son just struck out and he said, keep your eye on the ball. Come on, what's wrong with you? Now, let me just say to any parents in the room or aspiring parents, that's never a good question to ask under any circumstances. You never get a non-defensive, genuine answer from what's wrong with you. 
And he, he shouted that out and then he turned, he blew a gasket and turned his efforts, his energy to the umpire. And other parents were looking down in a way very awkwardly. And I wanted to say to him, bruh, 92% of the world's population doesn't own a car. You're one of the 8% who drove here. And I know what you do for a living. Like You're probably getting paid. You have free time while you're getting paid, while you're watching your son play. And your son is young and healthy and he's strong and he did the best he could. And even if he didn't, he's your son. And I wanted to say to him, bruh, stop feeling sorry for yourself and start finding reasons to be thankful. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. That's a clear verse, isn't it? And here's what I want to say to you this morning. God is not in the grumbling. God is in our gratitude. I read about, in preparation as I was studying, I read about a woman who was a missionary, recurrent missionary, uh, to the island of Tobago. Tobago is a Caribbean island next to Trinidad. And historically, some of you may know this, that it was used in British rule as a leper colony. And I was reading this testimony, this woman sharing about going there and she would lead worship. And on the last day there, she had built bridges of, of love to, to these people who have this terrible dreaded disease. And she's leading worship, and we don't do this, Lauren, on a Sunday morning. We could get in a lot of trouble. But she took requests, and she says, did anybody have a worship song they would like us to sing? And a woman with terrible, dreadful leprosy raises her hands sort of in the back of the room. And she was missing her ears. She was missing her lips. She had part of her nose. And this woman says that this woman from the back raised her almost fingerless hand. And she said, can we do that song, the one that says, count your many blessings? I was reading that and thinking, and maybe, maybe you don't need it. Maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm on the couch and you're the therapist today. Maybe it's just me, but I just started thinking. Maybe it's time to stop feeling sorry for myself and find reasons to be thankful. From Scripture... And from life, observing, being a, just a student of human behavior and culture, I want to share with you three reasons that we fall into the habit of complaining. Here they are. Companions, comparisons, and crises. Crises as in plural because there's many that you will have. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. But one of the reasons we complain, one of the reasons we whine and grumble is because of the people that we hang out with. Here's what I've never heard. Here's what you've never heard. Here's what we will never hear, guarantee you. Man, I really love hanging out with him. He just complains all the time. Can I just say, like, it's not attractive. It's not attractive. But yet one of the reasons that you, that we, fall into complaining is the people that we hang out with. Now, parents love it when I quote this verse, but there's a proverb that says, if you walk with the wise, you'll become wise. In other words, look, as strong as you think you are, as little as you think peer pressure has a hold on you, you will become like the people that you hang out with. You want to be wise? Hang out with some wise people. The opposite is true. You'll be, a, the Scripture says, same passage, you'll be, if you're a companion of fools, that's going to be the trajectory of your life. You'll walk into foolishness and folly. 
And same is true if the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If a wise person is a thankful person, is if a wise person is one who enters his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise, who makes a joyful noise and speaks life into people, then that's the kind of folks, that's the kind of folks that we need to hang out with and we need to see, hey, who's in our life? And one of the reasons that we follow the habit of complaining is our companions. Now, stay with me for a second. I learned this from a scholar years ago. I've taught it to a few of you. A very important distinction because I don't want you to leave here today thinking that I'm standing up here and saying, stop gossiping, complaining, exaggerating, and criticizing. It's a little deeper than that. But in the Bible, there are a couple of important G words. One of them is the word groaning. Like, make that noise. Make, make your best groaning noise out loud. One, two, three. Okay, some of you are really good at that. There's groaning, and then there's grumbling. Okay? Groaning is commanded in Scripture. Okay, so what we just did right then was not actually a sin. All right? Groaning, what's the difference between groaning and grumbling? Groaning is commanded in Scripture. Grumbling is forbidden. Groaning is when you're on your knees, essentially, and you're talking to God. One of the biblical words in the Hebrew is the word we get for lament. It's where you're sharing what hurts to God. And you're telling God to His face. And that is a form of worship. And you and I have a green light because God's big enough to hear our groaning. There's passage after passage that says, I groan. Psalm 6, verses 3 through 6. Psalm 13, if you're taking notes. Lamentations chapter 1, verse 25 and 27. There is a groaning and God says, groan to me. It's talking to God to His face. Not talking about God, but talking to God Groan. In fact, Romans 8 says all of creation is groaning. We live in a fallen world. Yes, there's fall. There's autumn that we're tasting, but there's tornadoes and mosquitoes. And as great as creation is, it's groaning. And we are called to groan. But we are forbidden to grumble. Look at some passages. The people of old apparently grumbled in tents. Uh, look at some of these passages. Exodus 15, 24. So the people grumbled against Moses. Look, leadership ain't easy. They grumbled against Moses saying, what are we to drink? Deuteronomy 127, you what? Grumbled in your tents and said, the Lord hates us. So he brought us out of Egypt to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. By the way, grumbling distorts the work of God in your life. Is that, is that a little extreme? The Lord hates us. Anybody know historically what just happened? They were rescued from Egypt. The Lord hates us. I'd like to say that I'm exempt. I really don't want to let you know how up and down and mercurial I can be. But I'm telling you, when I start grumbling, it gains momentum and gathers steam. And next thing you know, I'm bypassing God's good work in my life and I'm exaggerating the bad. The Lord hates us. Next passage, Psalm 106, verse 25. They grumbled. Here we go again. They grumbled in their tents and did not obey the Lord. Grumbling is connected. Not groaning, but grumbling is connected to disobedience. One more passage, Numbers 11. We make fun. we got a guy in our small group. I'm going to call him out, Raymond Kennedy. He brings the message version of the Bible to our small group, and we laugh at him. We point our finger and laugh out loud. But uh, excuse me for a moment as I use the message paraphrase in Numbers 11. The riffraff among the people had a craving, and soon they had the people of Israel whining. Why can't we have meat? We ate fish in Egypt and got it for free. 
to say nothing of the cucumbers and melons, the leeks and the onions and the garlics. Verse 10 of Numbers 11. But nothing tastes good out here. All we get is manna, manna, manna. Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. <laughs> Moses heard the whining. All those families whining in front of their tents. There we go with the tents. And God's anger blazed up. Moses saw that things were in a bad way. Now here is what I want to tell you. Your companions matter. It starts with the riffraff and it goes through the family. Hey, family, if you're a mom or a dad, your children are watching and they are listening. And when you're having that cell phone conversation and they're little and in the back, I'm telling you, they're hearing you. And they're learning if you're a whiner, grumbler, complainer, or if you're grateful. They're watching and it spills over who is in your life. The riffraff started the grumbling. And here's what Moses did get right. It shook him to the core. It affected his leadership. When the people start grumbling and you're leading the people, that's precarious. That's a lonely, tough place to be. No personal testimony here. I'm just speaking from what I've read. But Moses gets one thing right in this story. Some of you know Moses took the grumbling and he turned it into groaning. He went to God and he put it before the Lord. Hey, people, when you start grumbling, it gains momentum. It gathers steam. And next thing you know, you're missing God's good work in your life and you're exaggerating the bad. Maybe it's just me or the people that, uh, that were at the 930. But does anybody need to stop feeling sorry for themselves and to start finding what to be thankful for. God is not in the grumbling. He's in the gratitude. So your companions can lead to the habit of complaint. Am I right? But also comparisons. Some commentator years ago dropped this. It was a mic drop moment when I read it. But he said because of the internet, because of social media, we spend hours, many of us a day, comparing our insides with other people's outsides. And can I tell you, there is no way to be complaint-free if that's where you're living. And here's what's beautiful about the best-selling book of all time, this ancient Scripture that God gave us. We see comparisons from the very beginning. You know the story of those two brothers, Cain and Abel? They brought offerings to the Lord, and one was pleasing and one wasn't. And one of those brothers looked at that other brother, and he was comparing himself. And that, that led to grumbling. It led to darkness. It led to anger and a tough Tough situation for them. You look at 1 Samuel 18 and you see a king named Saul and a coming king, a young stud, shepherd, poet, warrior named David. And Saul says, oh, I have slain thousands, but he has slain tens of thousands. Comparison is a killer. And it leads to the deep habit of complaining and grumbling. When we compare, we lose. So companions, comparison, and crises. Many of you opened up your Bible to Philippians 2 where it says, what? Do all things without grumbling or complaining. Turn back, if you would, to chapter 1, if it's open and on your lap in front of you. Chapter 1, verse 29 says this, that there will be hard times, there will be difficulty, there will be hardship. Count on it. In fact, as a staff, we gathered for meeting and we read through Philippians 1 and we prayed it aloud and we talked about it. And one of our pastors who preached a couple of weeks ago, John Wood, he mentioned verse 29. He said, look what it says, that God has granted us that we share in belief in Christ, but also in the sufferings of Christ. Did you get that? God grants that. He grants it. 
It's part of it. I'll show you a photo of one of the one of the real intellects of our day. Some of you have got to recognize this man. He's one of the best-selling authors and thinkers of our day. Who is this? This is Malcolm Gladwell. Maybe you've read The Tipping Point. or I mean, all of his books are bestsellers. The book I read from Malcolm Gladwell most recently is the book David and Goliath. Uh, some of you are dialed into Relevant Magazine. Malcolm Gladwell, on the, all three screens now, is on the cover of Relevant Magazine. And the title says this, The acclaimed intellectual has a theory that could change the world, and it stems from the message of Jesus. In his work, David and Goliath... He talks about, and I love these two words together, it's a paradox. Remember that series, Paradox? He puts these two words together in the best-selling book, David and Goliath. Malcolm Gladwell talks about desirable difficulties. Now, you don't ever put those two words, desirable difficulties. And he cites research. He gives stories and statistics of reality in this book. He talks about how two-thirds of British prime ministers and one-third of Americans' past presidents all lost a parent when they were children. How almost 50% of successful entrepreneurs in America are dyslexic. He writes and he postulates and he says that these desirable difficulties, when people face hardship early in life, they are forced to learn more, work harder, and appreciate progress. How good is that? People that experience difficulty learn, that, or they, they, they're propelled to learn more, work harder, and appreciate the progress that they made. Desirable difficulty. In Philippians 1.29, before we're told to do all things without grumbling, we're told about our Savior who emptied Himself and became a man who left glory to come to earth and who gave his life for others and told us to not do not look out for your own interest, but to look out for the interest of other people. And that we don't just share in this belief. We don't just get reap the benefits of following Jesus. And there are many, but we count the cost. And part of that cost is that we would understand that we, it is granted by God for us to experience difficulty. And so this morning, I want to give you two ways. We've talked about three reasons that we fall into the habit of complaining. Our companions, our comparisons, our crises, the multiple hardships that we go through. I want to give you two ways that you can quit complaining. Y'all ready? It's worth the trip. Two ways to quit complaining. Here's the first. You can change your external world so there's nothing left to complain about. Now already, I know there's more to come, but we've already received a few complaints that it's cold in here. That was from the 930. And then we received another complaint that a squirrel was in the building. It's true. Your wife is with the squirrel now. She's not a vet, but she's trying to nurse the squirrel. The squirrel came in, a greeter, am I right, Mark? A greeter greeted the squirrel and, and uh, you know, tried to welcome him because everybody is welcome at Fondren Church. But the squirrel is out on the green lawn here, but we had someone complain about what's in our building. So here's two ways to quit complaining. One is to change your external world so there's nothing left to complain about. No cold, no squirrels, no creatures getting to you. Here, you, would need to, you would need to alter your world so there's nothing left to complain about. That means this, all your dates are cute, all your grades are A's, all your relatives are in therapy. 
If you're single, according to the world, and honestly, according to the church too often, if you're single, you need to be married. If you're married, well, you need a new and improved version of your spouse. Something from the factory floor. You would need a spouse that just never generates reason for you to complain. A Stepford wife or husband, if you will. They, they live in such a way that you never can complain. You would need, here's a way to quit complaining, is to just alter your external world. Two words I said at the early service. With that, good luck. Good luck. Another way to quit complaining is to change your inner world. Is to live every day prayerfully, basking, in the goodness of God, and offering a prayer that may go like this, Lord, God, I pray that I will receive today as manna from you. In each day, in the moments of those days, you look to Him and you see God change your inner world. Paul, who wrote Philippians 2.14, do all things without grumbling or disputing, he was... Early, an early follower of Jesus, and some of you heard me preach this, one of the most towering intellects in the history of humanity. Paul was a pastor and a church planter. And Paul was an affectionate person, a, a dear brother, and he traveled on three different, very historical missionary journeys where the church flourished like never before. And Paul, the second missionary journey, first he was with Barnabas and John Mark. The second missionary journey, he was with Timothy and Silas. And Timothy and Silas go through the city of Philippi. A very historic city. As they're walking through this city, they see what's going on around them. Very distressing. And they see a young girl who's possessed by demons. She had the ability, uh, this divine spirit where she could foretell the future. She was owned. Uh, she was a slave girl. She was owned by a group of men who made money off of her. Look, pick it up with me in Acts 16 and verse 18. She kept this, the servant girl, she kept this up for many days. Finally, I love the humanity of this. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the Spirit left her. That's what Jesus does. Isn't that great? Isn't that great? Someone released, someone in captivity, someone that was being exploited. She's now free. She's a girl who can become a woman. She's been set free. And those mean, evil men that imprisoned her. But you, we should be happy. We should celebrate that. But not everybody was happy. Who wasn't? The establishment, dare I say, the conservatives in the crowd, the religious people, the people that had power and control, and particularly the men who were exploiting that girl and girls like her, still exist today. Still exist today. And so they took Paul, and they took Silas, and they took them to the public marketplace, and they stripped them down for public humiliation and spectacle, and they flogged them. Do not Google first century flogging before you eat lunch today. It's brutal. Beaten and bloody, Paul and his cohort are put in not the comfort inn, not the candlewood or homewood suites or the courtyard by Mary, and they're put in prison, but not any prison, the worst prison. They're put in a cell, but not any cell, the inner cell. And their legs are spread apart, and their ankles are shackled in. Verse 25 of Acts 16. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners 
We're listening to them. Quick notes, don't miss this. Someone is always listening. Someone is always listening. Are you grumbling? God's not in the grumbling. Are you grateful? That's where God is. He's in our gratitude. Someone is always listening. And here's what Paul and his bro, Silas, were singing. They weren't singing an old tavern song. Not that there's anything wrong with that. They weren't doing karaoke down at the pub. Not that there's anything wrong with that. They weren't singing a slow, gloomy, funeral organ sounding song. They sang, as one translation puts it, a robust hymn to God. So this question is not a small question. This question, in a way, set up the rest of humanity and the world because the Jesus movement was taking root and it was bearing fruit. Why would a man in prison sing? What is different about him? Because you can affect your external world. You could get up right now. You could walk out. Don't do that. You could get in your car and go somewhere and you can click a remote control and you can watch the saints win today or if they lose, you can change the channel and act like it's not happening. or what it, like You can affect your external world. You can separate yourself from the people that are complaining. You can do things, but when you're in prison and your ankles are shackled, you can't do anything about your external world. So I ask you, like, I want you to get this one right. Why would a man sing in prison? One word. I've kind of devoted my life to this word. Studying it. Observing it. Thinking about it. Internalizing it. The word is joy. So back up a minute. There's something different about him. What was it? When you look at the life of Paul, you see where he got joy. Joy in creation, 1 Timothy 4.4. Joy in salvation, 1 Timothy 1.16-17. And then joy in anticipation. Leave that up for a moment if you wanted to take a picture or jot it down. But this joy, why would a man sing in prison? He couldn't affect his external world. I'll bet 99.9% of our energy is devoted to altering our external world. But what about the inner attitude? What about a spirit tuned into God with a different perspective and reality? Joy in creation. In 1 Timothy 4.4, Paul would say, some of us missed this. Paul would say, every good thing created by God is to be enjoyed. Like, get out there and enjoy this. God didn't have to make the Rocky Mountains or the Pacific Ocean or the small crackling fire. He didn't have to make the big enormous things that we can stand in awe of or the microscopic universe of subatomic particles. The more science studies the universe in which we live, the the more they teach us how enormous it is. It's bigger than we ever thought. And the smaller things are smaller than we ever thought. I'm not uh, too intelligent in this area, but there's atoms and protons and neutrons and there's stuff way smaller than all of that and it's an amazing world that God created and every good thing that God created is to be enjoyed. Hey grumblers, are you open to His gifts? Like guilt-free. God gave you these gifts and enjoy them. Now any gift can be distorted. Love can be lust. 
children are a blessing from the Lord. Psalm 127. We're going to dedicate a whole bunch of babies next Sunday evening. But just as love can be turned into lust, just as children, blessing from God can be turned into idols, especially true in our culture. Good things can replace God. But the good things God gives us, let me tell you, you're not going to live, you're not going to grow in your gratitude unless you can find those things and enjoy them. Do you appreciate the gifts He's given? Can you think of a time recently, regularly, where you reveled over a gift that God has given you? You prayed out loud, you basked in it, you appreciate it, you invited other people to join you. There's joy in creation, there's joy in salvation. In 1 Timothy 1, Paul would tell his story. It's important that you tell your story. Tomorrow night, some deacon leaders in our church, their servants in our church, they'll gather. And one of the things Van, our missions pastor, has been having them do is share their story. Everybody's got a story. Everybody's story is still being written. That's a good thing, isn't it? Isn't that a good thing? Like your story is still being written. We need to tell our stories. And Paul says, here's my story. He preempts it by saying, this is a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance. I was a blasphemer. I was a murderer. I was a persecutor. And God turned it around. Because that's what He does. Some of us have somebody down. They're under our foot because of their sin. And we're not letting them up. But God lets them up. God, the message of the gospel is get up and go forth. I've got something for you. One writer put it this way. He'll take your mess and make it your message. And Paul, that's his story. I have joy in my salvation. I have joy in anticipation. This is what I want to hone in on for just a moment. Romans 12, 12. Anybody know what that say says? One time I asked somebody if they knew a verse, and I told them I'd buy them lunch if they knew it, and the guy quoted it from the second row, and I had to go buy him lunch. Romans 12, 12. Some of you know it, you just don't know that you know it. It says, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer. Because you see, creation, as I mentioned earlier, is fallen. There's tornadoes and mosquitoes. Creation groans. It cries out. There will be redemption. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. That squirrel that tried to get in church will be welcomed. That squirrel will be healed. There's a new creation. There's joy and salvation, but sometimes we doubt. Sometimes we think that, we, that it isn't a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance. We, we waver with it. And there will be times when the joy we're experiencing is just being joyful in hope, just the anticipation that good will come. And here's what I want to say. Paul was not in stocks. He was not locked in this inner cell saying this. He didn't look over at Silas in their pain. Remember, they were praising. He didn't look over and go, I tell you, I'm suffering now. But if I get out of here, man, I'm going to take you, Silas. If you and I get out of here, we're going to go, we're going to go over there to that, that Italian place, you know, that, that Italian place with that Italian name with the pasta that's located next to the Colosseum, you know, where they're killing the Christians. And we're going to go over there. And man, if I get out, we're going to go have wine and pasta and we are going to eat, drink, and be merry if we get out of here. You see, it's different. Jesus came and He died so that we wouldn't live just for this world. Because you are not temporal. You are eternal. And that's why Jesus came. Take a look, 1989. Any of you remember this? Well, that's a picture of... Here we go. 1989, Dead Poet Society, Robin Williams. Don't you get sad when you think, man. But in 1989, Dead Poet Society, at this school, he was a professor, he was their teacher, and he taught them history and especially poetry. 
And it was a Latin phrase that took root in 1989. Everybody was saying it. We learned it from Robin Williams. Carpe diem, which means seize the day. Now why would they be taught to seize the day? Because it's all we have. Seize the day. He employed poets like Thoreau and Emerson and Whitman, and he said, you know, we're we going to be but worm food, so let's suck the marrow out of life because we don't have long. That is one way to live, but Jesus came and died for a better way. Carpe diem sees the day. Here's another photo of Mississippi's Morgan Freeman and Jack Nicholson bucket list. Remember this one more recently? And this was the ultimate FOMO movie. The fear of missing out. We, we're in a hospital bed. We don't have long to live. Let's shake these hospital gowns. Let's bust out of here. There are memories to make and pictures to take. And we don't have long to live. This is all we have. So let's just go for it. There's a philosophy that was in Jesus' day, Greco-Roman philosophy, that Paul spoke out against. Epicureanism. The Epicureans said, eat, drink, marry, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But here's what Paul said. This is why the resurrection is so important. All of our faith hinges on the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 32. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If the dead are not raised. So, a important question as we close is this. How much do you need from this world? If you look down at Philippians 2, your Bible's still open. He's going to go on to say, when he says, do all things without grumbling, or he's going to give a promise. If you do, if you become more grateful and you grumble less, you will stand out. You will shine as bright lights amidst a crooked and perverse generation. That's not mean judgmentalism. That's an invitation for new possibilities and a new way to live. Your life will stand out if you stop feeling sorry for yourself and you find ways to be grateful and you start to remove grumbling and walk into gratitude. People will notice. And then he says, there is joy. And he says, I poured out my life as a drink offering. In other words, I'm not going to walk through this life asking this world to fill me. Can we have a moment? That's death. That's endless frustration. That's futility and fruitlessness. It's a dead-end road as I'll read this week about an a, a MLB baseball player. Toxology report comes back. Federal investigators. He was dead in a hotel room. What went wrong? Well, drugs went wrong. What are you looking for? One angel on the team, California Angel, says, there's five other players I know were taking heavy doses of the same thing, hidden in hotel rooms. What are we looking for? What are we looking for this world to provide for us? So, this. The less you need from this world, the more you can give to it, withstand pain in it, and actually enjoy it. This isn't self-congratulatory. I just want to say, don't misunderstand me. That is a mic drop moment right there. And I hope it penetrates some of you. So would you pray with me?
God is true. We're asking things of this world that the world can't deliver to us. But we keep on trying. We look for the new, the novel, the different, the fresh and exciting, but it delivers the same emptiness time and time again. And time and time again, we read stories of old and we see the celebrities and the people who have what we want, but they don't want what they have. And we are asking too much of this world. And so Lord, I pray that we would think of another world and because we do, we would do so much good, so much more good in this world and be able to withstand pain and actually enjoy it because we're not created for it. Jesus, You came and died to give us resurrection, a new life, and an eternal one. And I thank You. Be honored in this time of worship, of singing, of prayer. As you stand, I want to invite you to do that very thing. And you're almost out of here. But I want you to stand now. And I want you to know that this altar is open. And we had some people at the early service come and pray and kneel. In fact, you're looking at one of them. I just feel like as I've written this and preached it that um, i got to get it deeper in me. Maybe you do too today. And maybe you want to come and kneel. Express your gratitude. Anybody grateful for anything today? Anybody want to express that publicly before the Lord? This is an altar. Altar was a big deal in the Bible. We've cheapened it and ignored it. But this altar is open. And I invite you, without any concern about what somebody might think, who cares, you come today and kneel or be come, greet one of us on our staff and we'll pray for you. Just a few minutes. Let's sing. Let's worship. Let's do business with God today.